If you live near the Columbia River in Oregon, this sound will be instantly recognizable to you. If you don't, the story of sea lion overpopulation in the Pacific Northwest might end up sounding familiar anyway. In the March issue, Sally Tisdale describes how, because of rising ocean temperatures and dam construction, once endangered sea lions have moved to the Columbia River Basin. These intelligent, cute, and gigantic animals have grown fat there, wreaking havoc on the local fish populations, biting swimmers, and causing $100,000 in damage every year, a problem that nobody wants to own. I spoke with Tisdale about how humans have created this problem and its unfortunate, inevitable solution. I thought this was a really good story because it's kind of a microcosm of the new world or America where screwing over native tribes historically and into the present day, there is environmental destruction that seems like it's going one direction. And then there's sort of this brief turnaround in the 70s with the first wave of environmental consciousness. And then there's this completely other type of damage that is happening now that sort of shows that there is no real end of history that we keep we sort of keep having to go um, and live with all of these different things that yeah that there may not there may not be an easy answer to we uh, we mess things up so thoroughly there's no clear way out yeah uh, there's no certainly no easy way out I I started research for this story not clear how I felt about it. I could see both sides from the outside and um, have a, you know, emotional response to both sea lions and to the um, incredible bounty of salmon that we have here. So I started out not knowing, you know, how I felt about it exactly, but it didn't take very long (laughs) for me to, to come to, realized that um, the sea lions did not belong there. And one way or the other, they had to go. I was going to say that one thing that really struck me and that we didn't have room to explore very much in the story is how um, how ignorant a lot of people are about the biology involved and, and the solutions that, that ordinary people have come up with are so removed from the reality of... <laughs> of mammalian biology and fish biology, it's, it's kind of depressing. You know, a pe- number of people have suggested that we just should move orcas into the Columbia River. Like, mm. like you can just take a marine mammal and throw them in a freshwater river and you can add a gigantic alpha predator to an ecosystem without long-term effects. And, you know, not even the more subtle things like not every orca eats sea lions. But just these, this way of throwing oddball ideas at it instead of accepting the fact that these animals are where they do not belong and they need to be taken out of that environment. Yeah, and obviously um, the documentary Blackfish dealt with how even people who study marine animals and study orcas specifically really don't understand how complex they are emotionally there's a lot we don't we still don't know about nature that again doesn't seem to go into solutions or considerations of 
animal safety, right. where we keep animals, the, how we count them, how we sort of keep them managed when we have, you know, as you say, sort of like open the door to something and uh, we can't close it. Right. And I, you know, and I actually believe both sea lions and many fish are sentient. I grant them both a kind of personhood. And yet we created this situation and we can't magically change it. Right. And in your article, you talk about, um, you know, obviously humans love to anthropomorphize animals and project personalities on them. And obviously they are sentient beings and they do, you know, maybe they do have a personality if we, but even that seems like the wrong term. So can you talk about the science of, you know, why people love these sea lions and sort of what makes them unique as a species? To me, sentience is defined as self-awareness. And there, there is no doubt that sea lions have self, a sense of self-identity and a sense of self-awareness. Um, we've been conditioned to see them as cuddly and harmless because of circuses. Uh, the California sea lion is usually what you see as a trained seal in a circus. And even if we didn't see circuses, the imagery is very prevalent in our culture. The image of a seal on a pretty colored drum balancing a ball on its nose seems very harmless, very sweet, very stuffed animal-like. People have a, an immediate urge for that. There's a reason people like fur, and these animals were hunted um, almost to extinction for their fur and for other parts of their body. And, and they have big brown eyes, you know, and they make eye contact. Yes. I don't know how much you've been around them, but when you're near a large group of them, they, they know you're there and they make contact with you. They, they may not respect us because <laughs> for one thing, they're bigger and stronger than we are, but, <laughs> but they certainly are aware of us. And so there is an exchange of some kind that goes on in these relationships. In the very first lawsuit, the Humane Society filed against the Section 120 permit. There were two people who joined the lawsuit saying that they had personal emotional relationships with individual sea lions who lived in the tail race of the dam, that they had developed these relationships through being kayakers there. Now, if you go to the tail race and you look at the feet per second of water flow and the waves and the, I mean, there's, it's, this isn't really a place where you kayak and develop personal <laughs> relationships with animals. <laughs> so the fish scientists were, they very much will roll their eye at this concept. But the fact that people think they do, they think these sea lions know them, they think they respond to them emotionally is interesting. Yeah. You also spoke with some marine biologists who likened them to border collies or even golden retrievers. And that, again, even that sort of a comparison seems like it's similar to, you know, the idea that you would choose an animal that's man's right. best friend to compare these animals to. It sort of belies a certain type of relationship. Dogs are often used as a model for animal intelligence because they're familiar to us. Golden retrievers are not as smart as border collies. And so that, you know, that was uh, one scientist saying, oh, no, they're smarter than golden retrievers. They really are more alert and faster to learn and 
and, you know, border collies, that's a pretty high standard for animal intelligence. So the people who work closely with sea lions, such as in the aquarium, they do have, I think, a legitimate personal relationship with these animals that develops over years and years, uh, where they are with them almost every day. They feed and groom them and care for them when they're ill. And so I think it makes perfect sense that they think of dogs when they think of these animals. Large animals with personality who respond to your commands and look you in the eye and sit beside you. That's what dogs do. That's what horses do. So we very much put them in that category. Now, it's the difference is that there's 300,000 California sea lions. And if <laughs> the California and Oregon coast was inundated with 300,000 horses or golden retrievers, it would feel very strange. Yes. I don't think we would think of them in quite the same way. No. And if they were golden retrievers on land, that number, you would be able to sort of feel the effects more personally as right. a human being sort of trying to walk right. around, perhaps. When the sea lions come out of the water in Astoria and walk along the sidewalk, it's startling. Um, nobody wants to go near them because you're not allowed to harass or molest a sea lion. You can get into a lot of trouble with the federal government for that, um, which is good. I think that's a good law rather than willy-nilly just wiping, <laughs> wiping them out. But there's this iconic photograph of a police officer in Astoria standing in an intersection looking at a sea lion with his hands on his hips like, what are we going to do now? <laughs> when they're out of place, yeah. they're really out of place. And even though they're water animals, they seem so strange to be in the river. Yeah. I mean, you describe in your piece one of your son's yeah. interactions with a, a, a dead sea lion that was rotting, like trying to move this giant over a ton carcass. Yeah. You know, he called the aquarium. He called the state. He called the Coast Guard, called the port. And they were all they all just said, you know, nobody owns these animals. It's not our problem. It's your property. Really, the best you could do is get a chainsaw and... <laughs> And so oh my God. <laughs> that's another thing that's interesting about this. They are wild animals. They don't belong to anybody. And um, when they take over a beach or wash up on somebody's property, it's really no one's and everyone's problem. During the government shutdown recently, a state park in California, without anybody monitoring it during the shutdown, seals moved in and a huge crowd took over that beach and wouldn't leave. And it's really nobody's problem and everyone's problem. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the shutdown. Um, you know, in your article, you speak about this um, piece of legislation, Section 120, and obviously certain people were very for it, and then other people were very opposed to it. What has happened since? In mid-December, a law was signed, um, and it has been it's been going back and forth from the Senate to the House and back in two versions. There was a House version and a Senate version that were then reconciled. Um, and the law was signed and passed in mid-December. So after, after my story was finished, but before we fact-checked it, um, I could see this coming. Everybody had anticipated this. The interesting thing is that I doubt if this would have passed the House in its current iteration. It's seen as a conservative Republican law. 
even mm-hmm. though the legislatures of the whole Northwest and the governors of the three states all are for it. So the law amends the Marine Mammal Protection Act in specific ways and lays out very clear criteria to make it much easier for the states and the tribes to get permits to kill sea lions. So this passed just before the Congress switched, the House became a Democratic majority, and I don't know if it would have passed then. Outside of the Pacific Northwest, killing sea lions is not seen as a really desirable thing for a Democrat to go on record for. In the Northwest, it has very powerful bipartisan support because we live with it every day. One of many laws that has local effects, but a national repercussion. Of course. Yeah. And I, I'm from Iowa originally. And so you may not have a big opinion on sea lions. <laughs> I, well, I have, I mean, I'm familiar with deer overpopulating and the problems where all of the natural predators were killed. And then people move into, they want to build their McMansion in a place that's naturally prairie and that gets flooded. And then they're mad that it gets flooded, but that is a habitat for right, deer. Right. And then the deer, you know, they hit the deer with their car and it's very dangerous. And then deer go where they normally haven't gone before. And then you have to get in hunters. And then that's like kind of gross, but it's clearly necessary on some level. But on the other level. hand, you know, the difference with deer is that we can then cull them and eat them. Right. You know, the, the laws for culling overpopulated deer herds make it clear that a hunter goes in and can take the deer and use it. And we just change hunting. But the sea lions, every part of this, the Marine Mammal Protection Act prohibits use of their, their bodies. Uh, and that is because they were terribly terribly devastated. All marine mammals, whales, sea lions, and so on, were devastated by hunting. So the law is very specific. You can't take hide, you can't take bones, you can't use the meat. So they are killed and destroyed. Now the meat, you know, that's the other thing. I've seen letters to the editor saying, why don't the tribes just hunt the sea lions in their traditional way? Well, They didn't hunt sea lions traditionally. They didn't have sea lions up the river traditionally. This is a modern phenomenon. Coastal tribes would occasionally take a sea lion if it was an opportunistic kill. But the meat is not liked. (laughs) Everyone I've talked to that has studied eating the flesh of sea lions, they couldn't even make dog food out of it in Alaska. Um, So you know, what are we going to do? We are simply, and plus they now have accumulated toxic levels of heavy metals like all alpha predators do. So they are killed and they are rendered. They they can't even take the bones. It's to me a very stark framing of what happens when human beings don't stop to think about their carrying capacity. And 150 years ago, we got to the Columbia and decided to take all the fish. And it's just been a set of dominoes all the way down since then. In your article, there's one sea lion trainer who's advocating for positive reinforcement to sort of drive them elsewhere. But the fact is that very easy and a great deal of food is available to them in this particular waterway. So no matter what you do, they're always going to want to come back. And there's also this biological component of where 
they learn where it is and then also it's just sort of like in their system because they've eaten this fish right it's you know and i uh, this trainer i know she knows she knows there's no better positive conditioning than what they're already doing there's no way to persuade them not to go eat a salmon buffet there's this behavioral component, which is very interesting, which is that they teach each other about this. Um, there was a, an Army Corps of Engineer scientist who did a, an epidemiological study, and he watched which sea lions knew about the tail race and who they interacted with in their herd and who then followed them up the river. And he figured that it, it was a kind of infection, that they were passing this knowledge the way a virus passes. So most of the mm-hmm. time, the animals that are up at the tail race have been there before. 90% of them are known veterans. And every season, they bring a couple of new recruits with them and a couple more new recruits and a couple more. So it the knowledge keeps getting passed down from animal to animal. The solution... And, and when I said we came to the Columbia and decided to eat all the fish, I mean white people. <laughs> I mean Europeans. Yes. <laughs> because the Native Americans yes. have had a balanced and sustained relationship with the fish for 11,000 years. They have been prospered along the river for 11,000 years. And it took white Europeans 100 years to destroy the balance. So it's on us and we need to fix it. And the only way to fix it is to kill every sea lion that knows about the tail race until that knowledge dies out. Eventually, another one will find their way up, but it'll be a few. Now, when I say kill everyone, people have this image of this bloody massacre of dead sea lions everywhere. The total number that probably need to be killed, according to the biologists, is maybe 400. 400 sea lions out of 300,000 sea lions could stop this. And when I say stop this, I mean at Willamette Falls, there were 15,000 fish in a run. And a few years later, there were 500 fish in this run. And we're talking about massive losses of fish. So 400 sea lions a million fish. We really are talking about huge numbers of fish. Now, the position of the Humane Society and PETA and a few other um, places is dams kill more fish, overfishing kills more fish, development along the river kills more fish. It's true. But there are very active efforts to fix those problems, and they've been going on for quite some time. Overfishing is very in fact I just saw today they just released the spring Chinook run fishing numbers and they're half of last year. So you know we're gonna hear complaints from fishermen that they're not getting to get enough Chinook this year. But that's exactly why. So we have to tackle it on all these sides. You mentioned the native tribes that are in this area that have managed to live peacefully with the land and not abuse it. This new legislation, what has reaction been to that? And I guess, is this a common problem among other Native American tribes around the U.S.? 
well, not sea lions. Not necessarily with sea islands, um, but yeah, not with sea lions, but another another well, sort of invasive species. I think I think the problem the tribes have had is being able to is to be given true agency for what is their what is their place and their and their land. Um, the Columbia River Intertribal Fishing Commission has co-management of the fish on the Columbia. Um, they didn't for a long time, you know, in the treaties, they were given the right to fish, mm -hmm. but that didn't stop the Europeans from taking the fish first. You know, they, the Europeans um, took enormous numbers of fish out of the Columbia and moved the Indians to a reservation and said, sure, you can fish if you can get a couple hundred miles back to the river and get past our settlements and our boats and our guns, you can fish. So they weren't given agency at all to manage the resource until um, the Bolt decision in the 70s, and they were given back the right to fish. And now, even today, decades later, fishermen do complain about the Bolt decision because it gives tribes half the harvestable fish above Bonneville. Um, they used to have it all. <laughs> now they get half. And there was, you know, the Columbia River... Um, Intertribal Fishing Commission has a huge budget. I think it's $20 million a year or so. And it's it's not just doing fishery management. It's doing research, um, running hatcheries, um, doing a lot of education. They have a salmon camp for children of the tribes so that they don't lose this culture. And they do a lot of cultural support. They've been very responsible about this resource all along. It's always been the Europeans who've been irresponsible. So I think it's for the tribes, it's always been about getting agency. You know, there's a, there's a, an odd controversy at Willamette Falls where there's another, another intertribal group that is arguing over who was most traditionally using the fish ladders there and, and gillfish, gillnet fishing there. And so there is some intertribal conflict, but it's not about resource management. If there's a conflict, it's about territory, but it's not about protecting the numbers of fish. We're the only group of people that ever thought it made sense to extract an entire species from a river. I don't know what else to say. We treated fish like gold yeah. and we just emptied it out. And then we were somehow surprised that there weren't so many left. Or that removing an entire species from an ecosystem have repercussions yeah 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 have repercussions but specifically that given the um this sheer volume of salmon and other types of fish that the sea lions are eating this could have huge this could cause like almost an environmental collapse right well and there and there is you know there the i don't know a lot of the nuances of the interspecies relationships between the fish, but they have been in balance when left alone. They balance themselves. When one species is overfished, then things get a little strange. And the sturgeon are, are part of this. The sturgeon is one of the, the great fish of the Columbia, and I don't think there are a lot of sturgeon elsewhere in the United States. Um, when the stellar sea lions first came, they went straight for the giant white sturgeon, huge fish that um, were very 
we think of as really iconic up here. And they were just, they just went straight for them. It's hard not to think of other places where, you know, the classic example being mongoose in Hawaii. Oh my gosh. And I do know that um, story. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, they brought in the mongoose to kill the rats, which they had brought in without realizing that one species is diurnal and the other is nocturnal. So they didn't even meet. The mongoose instead discovered that Hawaii had a whole lot of ground nesting birds and wham, entire species of ground nesting birds were driven to extinction in a few short years. I actually drove with a a Hawaii Fish and Wildlife Ranger. I did a story about the birds of Hawaii some time ago, and I remember driving along a road with this ranger, and he swerved to try to hit a mongoose, and he said, oh, the only good mongoose is a dead mongoose, period. It is very similar, except that we added the mongoose. We didn't add the sea lions. We just knocked out, we just raised the ocean temperatures so that we knocked out the anchovy and the sardines that they live on, and change the balance of their ocean and encourage them to come to an easier place to eat. And we built a dam that accumulated all the fish in one place. And yeah, I mean, it's entirely up our fault that the sea lions are doing this. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's no question of human meddling yeah, yeah. like and creating this totally outrageous yeah. system. I mean, people say people say we're demonizing the sea lions. There's all this like, oh, they're being killed just because they're eating. And I don't think anybody feels negative towards sea lions. We don't, nobody wants to go kill a bunch of sea lions. There's just, although there, there have been some assassinations of sea lions, I have to say there have been these spate of illegal killings of sea lions. And I'm sure most of those are by um, serious fishermen who are just sick of competing with the sea lions. But that's very. That's a relatively small phenomenon. I think the serious scientists who are involved, the fish scientists, the biologists, the um, Army Corps and tribal people, none of them are malevolent towards sea lions. They just recognize, as a couple of them said, we're population biologists. We need to protect a population. And that means that individuals may be sacrificed. Exactly. And that... It does feel cruel, let's say, to have to kill an animal that is cute and sentient and maybe ha you do have a sense of connection with or whatever, but that the fa and, but you you also can't eat yeah. that there is some feeling of waste or like some sort crossing some sort of moral boundary, but ultimately there are too many of them and that you know, that burden or feeling guilty is part of the price that you have to pay for creating this overpopulation and destroying all this, uh, you know, destroying their natural habitat and their natural food sources. And I have to add, while there's 100 California sea lions and maybe 70 or 80 stellar sea lions having a great time up at Bonneville and getting fat, ridiculously fat in some cases, there are baby sea lions starving by the thousands in Southern California, the species reached its carrying capacity. And there was a big starvation event a couple of years ago, and the Sea Lion Defense Brigade and these rescue groups were out picking up starving sea lion pups and feeding them and 
trying to save their lives while other sea lions are smacking down on salmon up here. There's a disconnect there. Animals do, every species does reach a carrying capacity in its environment and and die-offs are a natural part of biology. Human beings have had starvation events and die-offs and and plagues when we've over um, used our resources and it's going to happen again to us. It's a natural biological phenomenon. So saving a starving sea lion pup in a rookery is not really helping anybody. It's not really helping the sea lion who will just have to go find food somewhere else. Or just have a terrible, lousy life or in a very painful death. Yeah, of being hungry all the time. Yeah, There is this tourist element of having the sea lions (laughs) and that it's sort of been adopted as this unofficial, you know, mascot of the area, just like the armadillo in Austin is sort of the a pest that's also an unofficial mascot of the city. How has that affected legislation? And it's uh, you know in Astoria there are there are about ten thousand people and anywhere from three to four thousand sea lions. So it's a huge amount of um, energy in the city. Is you know people are aware of the sea lions. You hear them barking all day long. You you see them all along the river. The um, cruise ships come and drop people off, and they go up to see them at the mooring. And um, and then when two sea lions got above Bonneville Dam and and took up residence at a town above the dam, they were immediately adopted by the town, and people were feeding them hot dogs and wanted to give them <laughs> names. And of course, they you know the fish and wildlife guys eventually trapped them and took them below the river to say so long. Um, and people were very upset about that. They, I have a personal relationship with this animal, but it's imagine a lion that decided to take up residence in a park or an elephant that was going to hang out downtown. I mean, there are just places where certain species don't belong and will not, it's not going to work out. And Astoria has come to some, you know, I think acceptance of the fact that the sea lions aren't going anywhere. They have to repair the docks constantly, but they bring in, they bring in dollars. They bring in customers to some extent. If they disappeared tomorrow, Astoria would still be a lovely town to visit and the cruise ships would still arrive. It has a lot of other things to offer, but uh, merchants are certainly aware. My son's bar built a glass brick floor so that people could watch the sea lions underneath and they get customers just for that reason. But, you know, killing 400 sea lions over the next three or four years at the dam isn't going to hurt that. That's not going to change. And it's also not going to change these larger problems with ocean habitats either. Right. And what, what, you know, the only problem is that people then develop these kind of fantasy relationships with the animals and they, they think they know what a sea lion is like. They think they understand them. We all, we all do that. We look at an animal, we feel a connection. We think we know what their life, what their interior life is like. And we don't. A sea lion is very different from you and me. Um, and they're very wild. And I don't think we should 
project characteristics on animals. Right. If a lion could talk, you wouldn't understand what they said. That classic, <laughs> that saying, yes. Well, that's, it's actually a bat, I think, is the classic one, is, is um, can we ever know what a bat thinks? Um, is it possible to know what a bat thinks? I don't know. I think it's possible to recognize personhood in an animal. But I think we tend to not even recognize personhood in people who have different skin color than we do. So we have a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. Humanity doesn't have much time to sort of get it together, right. but um, <laughs> right. we got but, no other choice. But the fact is, I mean, we did pass this law. The culling has already yes. started. Um, they have to apply for new permits, but there were permits in place. Sea lions are being um, trapped and killed now uh, near both Willamette Falls and Bonneville. So that's the future that we've made. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.